0: I'm Calvin Pollack. And I'm Alex Helberg today
1: is our, what we're calling our first episode of kind of the new school year. Uh, we're back from our, uh, summer, our summer vacation. How was yours, Calvin?
0: I uh, it was good. I it really was nice not having to do the podcast. Uh, for, for,
1: <laughs> you enjoyed, you enjoyed, ta- he enjoyed taking some time away from me. Uh, he didn't have to spend as much time, uh, you know, we didn't have to spend as much time
0: looking at and you.
1: talking to each other. You yeah. know, yeah. I mean, yeah, we're, we're, this is the irony. We're in a rhetoric program. We actually really don't like talking to, uh, to one another to other people don't care for it yeah no really that's i yeah. mean that's why we study it analytically right um so so we're gonna dive right into our new season but first before we go into you know, new interviews, new new concepts and things. We kind of wanted to do uh, what we're calling a recap. We wanted to do a an episode where we talk through some of the things that we've talked about in our previous episodes with our other guests. So what we're going to do today is actually go through some of our previous episodes and really touch on... Our conversation topics, what we thought were really important, uh, ideas from those. So for the, those of you who are new to the podcast, who haven't listened before, this is a good primer for some of the things that we talked about in our first season of the podcast, or the first uh, the first year that we were doing it last last semester.
0: Yeah, it's going to be kind of like a clip show, you know, like if you like from like the <laughs> sitcom Seinfeld, if you ever <laughs> love those episodes where they play it. But we're actually not going to play any clips. We're just going to talk about things that we've already talked about in hopefully new and interesting ways.
1: Yes. Yep, that's right. So if you hear anything that you're interested in and you want to go back and listen, uh, this is a good kind of catalog of what we've done so far. You can go back. To, we'll mention the episode uh, numbers so that you can go back and reference them. But we're also going to be talking about them in new ways. We're going to be talking, giving new examples to talk about uh, the things that we've discussed previously. Right. Right. So to kick it off, if you haven't listened to our first episode yet, this was kind of the one where we talked about the broad concepts of what rhetoric is, what it means, why it's important to study rhetoric, language, and the humanities, as well as uh, some misconceptions of you know how people
0: describe what rhetoric is. Mm-hmm. I think one of the most important stacies that we reached in, in that episode, which is to say a, a, an unresolved question is, to what extent is public discourse inflected by material power and mm-hmm. and privilege? Right. Uh, which is to say, to what extent do material power and privilege influence the ways that we argue and influence our standards of argument and our standards of public deliberation?
1: Right, and what we consider to be good debate. Good and
0: bad rhetoric. Right, yeah, Yeah. yeah exactly.
1: Yeah, which is an interesting question that I think is has kind of inflected our thinking for a lot of episodes thereafter, of course, we were talking there with Doug Cloud from uh, from Colorado State, who had kind of given us this, a good background on on what rhetoric is and its sort of classical conceptions of, deliber- of deliberation and, uh, and debate. So then, in episodes two and three, we talked a little bit more about security rhetoric. Calvin, do you want to take us through some of those? Yeah,
0: so on episode two, we talked to Professor Patricia Dunmire about her work, which was based on a lot of analyses of national security strategy documents of the United States and kind of talking about the ways that conceptions of U.S. national security draw upon implicit notions of the future and, and other kind of temporal conceptions, basically that the U.S. is kind of the steward of the future and that all of our enemies and all of the threats to our national security are trying to pull us back into the past or keep us mired in the present. And in our third episode, we just on our own, the two of us explored a couple of contemporary examples of national security rhetoric, where we explored how Trump's current national security discourse is is very mired in an idea of the US as a powerhouse, as a a state that needs to be constantly exporting its own security prerogatives and political agendas throughout the world just to keep the world and America safe, as well how the intelligence community's assessment of Russian meddling in the 2016 election relied upon certain assumptions about what the U.S. is and has been as a nation, as a political system, and that the assessment of what Russia may or may not have done was dependent on all of those kinds of assumptions. And so I think today to kind of continue thinking about what national security means rhetorically, we wanted to look at Trump's own national security strategy document, just a portion of it. So this document came out in late 2017. So these documents typically come out every two years, especially with a new administration. So Obama had two national security strategy documents usually do one for each term obama had a 2010 one and a 2015 one and so this is trump's from 2017 and so this came out in december 2017 there's a section of it that i wanted to read from it's called preserve peace through strength so i'm just going to read a portion of it and then get your take on it alex right kind of talk through it yeah So here it is a central continuity in history is the contest for power. The present time period is no different. Three main sets of challengers, the revisionist powers of China and Russia, the rogue States of Iran and North Korea and transnational threat organizations, particularly jihadist terrorist groups are actively competing against the United States and our allies and partners. Although differing in nature and magnitude, These rivals compete across political, economic, and military arenas, and use technology and information to accelerate these contests in order to shift regional balances of power in their favor. These are fundamentally political contests between those who favor repressive systems and those who favor free societies. China and Russia want to shape a world antithetical to U.S. values and interests, China seeks to displace the United States in the Indo-Pacific region, expand the reaches of its state-driven economic model, and reorder the region in its favor. Russia seeks to restore its great power status and establish spheres of influence near its borders. The intentions of both nations are not necessarily fixed. The United States stands ready to cooperate across arenas of mutual interest with both countries. For decades, U.S. policy was rooted in the belief that support for China's rise and for its integration into the post-war international order would liberalize China. Contrary to our hopes, China expanded its power at the expense of the sovereignty of others. China gathers and exploits data on an unrivaled scale and spreads features of its authoritarian system, including corruption and the use of surveillance." It is building the most capable and well-funded military in the world, after our own. Its nuclear arsenal is growing and diversifying. Part of China's military modernization and economic expansion is due to its access to the U.S. innovation economy, including America's world-class universities. Russia aims to weaken U.S. influence in the world and divide us from our allies and partners. Russia views the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and European Union as threats— Russia is investing in new military capabilities, including nuclear systems, that remain the most significant existential threat to the United States and in destabilizing cyber capabilities. Through modernized forms of subversive tactics, Russia interferes in the domestic political affairs of countries around the world. The combination of Russian ambition and growing military capabilities creates an unstable frontier in Eurasia, where the risk of conflict due to Russian miscalculation is growing. The scourge of the world today is a small group of rogue regimes that violate all principles of free and civilized states. The Iranian regime sponsors terrorism around the world. It is developing more capable ballistic missiles and has the potential to resume its work on nuclear weapons that could threaten the United States and our partners. North Korea has ruled as a ruthless dictatorship without regard for human dignity. For more than 25 years, it has pursued nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles in defiance of every commitment it has made. Today, these missiles and weapons threaten the United States and our allies. The longer we ignore threats from countries determined to proliferate and develop weapons of mass destruction, the worse such threats become, and the fewer defensive options we have. The United States continues to wage a long war against jihadist terrorist groups such as ISIS and al-Qaeda. These groups are linked by a common radical Islamist ideology that encourages violence against the United States and our partners and produces misery for those under their control. Although the United States and our partners have inflicted defeats on ISIS and al-Qaeda in Syria and Iraq, these organizations maintain global reach with established branches and strategic locations. The threat from jihadist terrorists will persist, even as we intensify efforts to prevent attacks on Americans, our allies, and our partners. Protecting American interests requires that we compete continuously within and across these contests, which are being played out in regions around the world. The outcome of these contests will influence the political, economic, and military strength of the United States and our allies and partners. So that is... uh, a portion of Preserve Peace Through Strength, which is a section of Trump's first national security strategy document. All
1: right. Just out of curiosity, Calvin, how long are these documents typically? Like the entire the entire thing? The
0: entire thing is about 80 pages. Oh, okay. So they're wow. long.
1: So it's exhaustive at yeah, least. Yeah. So, but this is kind of, I guess, an overview, a, a succinct sort of summary of the overall strategy. strategy and attitudes that the current administration has towards national security.
0: And it's highlighting what the administration views as the top threats. I see. Um, to the United States. Interesting. And so this this is actually historically significant because this is the first post-9-11 national security strategy document that has named China and Russia as greater threats than terrorist groups like and al-Qaeda and ISIS.
1: I did notice that even in just in terms of the way that things are ordered, that those are considered the two, they're given more space, they're talked yeah. about more, and they're
0: talked about first, before al-Qaeda and ISIS even this textual organization is key. It's a key way of establishing the kind of ranked order of threats. Right. Um, and so, this is the first time that China and Russia, since nine eleven, have been at the top of the stack of threats.
1: Which is interesting. So we can come up with a, a few different ways to read this. I'm sure one would be, you know, just taking at face value that that first statement that. The central continuity in history is the contest for power, right? Yeah. So in this case, what the administration seems to be prioritizing in their national security strategy is not so much, you know, security from violent dangers of, you know, like attacks on American citizens, as might have been the case in the past, or as might, as is usually framed in the case of, you know, terrorist groups in the Middle East, but rather this is being framed in more sort of large-scale economistic or... Just in terms of in terms, terms of yeah, and in terms of material power in the world, yes. right? This is not anymore about whether or not we remain secure in knowing that we can go outside every day and not, uh, you know, not have to fear for our lives, but rather America's place in the global order instead.
0: Yeah, the global power structure. Right. Um, so it is novel in that way, in the, the directness of its statement that. National security is really about power and about U.S. hegemony. At the same time, it does reinforce certain tropes that scholars of national security rhetoric have identified in the past, including this idea of the container. So during the Cold War the US maintained a containment strategy of keeping the Soviet Union like beyond a certain security perimeter mm-hmm. and, and that and that was essential to the national security strategy at right. that time
1: and that's we're not just talking about a physical perimeter right like this is kind of this is more a figurative perimeter of you know one of ideology one of values and interests and it's in large part discursively constructed right
0: right and so it includes all of those things and a lot of that is essential to How the state has viewed its purpose in maintaining ideological uniformity for the purposes of waging war. That a populace that is ideologically uniform will be more mobilized to, to support the war and therefore the war will go better. Right key to maintaining that like container metaphor is the idea that these powers that we are placing outside of the container should be rendered in maximally distinct ways from us right in terms of how their characters are constructed in discourse so we can see like throughout this section there are examples of kind of bad behavior that are attributed to the other powers state-driven economic model Authoritarian systems, uh, the use of surveillance, establishing spheres of influence near their borders.
1: Yeah. Oh, interfering in the domestic political affairs of countries around the world, that one's attributed to Russia.
0: Right. That Iran is sponsoring terrorism around the world, developing right. ballistic missiles. Right. And so, obviously in a document like this, it's not going to draw attention to the fact that the United States does all of these exact same things. Right. Yeah, so for exactly. the purposes of maintaining the container, we we need to highlight and uh, dramatize these supposed differences Mm -hmm. um, and the supposed bad behavior on the outside of the container. In another section of this report, they talk about how North Korea starves its own people and yet at the same time is investing more and more money in its military. And this is just particularly ironic given that under Trump, both parties in Congress have ratified massive increases in military spending in the United States when people are literally starving in <laughs> yeah, the United States. Yep.
1: And and they're currently yeah negotiating a, a farm bill. I mean, one hasn't gone through yet because it's been incredibly controversial, but they're still negotiating a farm bill, which is essentially at different points in its lifespan has just been how extreme can we make the cuts to SNAP benefits and to other social welfare welfare programs that, that help people who are going hungry, basically people who are starving as a result of poverty or other socioeconomic factors. So yeah, it's not too different. Obviously, again, this wouldn't be something that's that's brought up as a contextual detail in a statement like this for the purposes of maintaining the sense of national identity. You know, we we have to say, oh, these things are outside of the U.S. These are things that we that we don't do, but that we and that we consider evil. It feels crass to say that it's that it's ironic um, in that way, that that we're sort of officially the official word is that we're distancing ourselves from these values when we actually do perpetuate them the uses of surveillance <laughs> particularly all of the things that are mentioned here pretty much we had, our government has done in some way shape or form
0: yeah and I mean the just to provide a little context like national security strategy documents the purpose of them primarily is for like internal agenda setting for the right. administration right so this is about The administration telling federal agencies what the priorities are Mm -hmm. um, and how they should be thinking about those priorities. And so what this does is it basically gets the entire team on the same ideological page and it's clear that that page cannot allow in these inconvenient facts about the United States doing all of these same things because that could potentially damage morale. Right. And I still think it's kind of a great example of how national security draws upon these tropes of national identity and the container metaphor. Definitely. Definitely. So.
1: So... So moving along, we have, in episode four, we discussed the concepts of memory and trauma, and how those two kind of intersect. We had an interview with Taylor Rugg, who presented some of her research work and creative work on the topic of memory, and we really got into discussing this distinction between public perceptions of traumatic experiences, particularly like these large-scale public traumas, and the lived personal experiences of people who actually go through that trauma. So the example that we talked through is military service as a sort of, you know, a trauma that the public tries to understand from afar, and that we have these sort of idealized versions of, of you know, what soldiers go through and the ways that they uh, should be treated as a result of uh, that sort of public perception of their trauma, and then soldiers' actual lived experience of that trauma and the sort of, you know, the literal and figurative scars that, that they carry around as a result of things they've had to do. And also we we got into this discussing the physical materiality of trauma, how trauma can be physical. And that that serves a sort of memorializing purpose, that that has a lot to do with how we remember trauma through all sorts of different things. Whether or not it's physical scars that mark a body or physical markings of other kinds. One of the things that was really made very visceral for me uh, this past summer, I actually had the opportunity to travel to Vietnam. And at Calvin's request, he had already uh, been to this location, but he told me that I needed to go visit the Vietnam War Remnants Museum right. uh, in Ho Chi Minh City. So I, I got a chance to go visit the Remnants Museum. Is essentially, it's got a big plaza outside of it that contains a lot of military hardware, things like helicopters, fighter jets, tanks, personnel carriers, all sorts of these you know physical artifacts that were recovered from. The war, uh, and then on the inside they have exhibitions that are you know showing everything from documents, letters that people would write uh, about the war, you know letters from soldiers or you know different uh, different uh, posters and other kinds of propaganda from uh, from all the different sides uh, within the war. But really, the purpose of the museum seems to be to kind of tell the story about the Vietnam War, or as it's framed over there, the U.S. War, or the War of U.S. Aggression, hmm. from the perspective of Vietnamese people. you know, right. Because our, as Americans, our public perception of the Vietnam War and the trauma that comes with it is so often mediated through, especially for those of us who didn't grow up in the era, through television, right. uh, through uh, movies, movies yeah. uh, through different kinds of cultural representations that while often framing the Vietnam War as something that was really horrific and something that had all these kind of negative elements to it, it still is very one-sided. Yeah, still it always only,
0: centers yes. the trauma of U.S. soldiers. Precisely, precisely. And what you
1: learn in going through the War Remnants Museum is that in comparison, I mean, the the scale of trauma felt by the Vietnamese people in the wake of this war is is Immeasurable, Mm -hmm. Uh, and in fact, it is literally immeasurable because, as I learned in going through the museum, it's still ongoing. People are still dying from the Vietnam War, (laughs) from the actions that were taken during the during the '60s and '70s. So, I actually did a tweet thread about this a while ago that we'll that we can link to in the show notes. It's on this exhibit that was that was rotating. Uh, It was a rotating exhibition in the museum about the after effects of what's called unexploded ordnance. So unexploded ordnance is essentially when bombs or other kinds of military ordnance, explosives, usually are either dropped or placed in a war zone, but don't detonate for some reason. Uh, You know, either they when a bomb is dropped it just doesn't detonate upon impact, or, you know, there are mines that were set in the war that nobody ever tripped or set off. I'm reading from one of the posters that was posted in the museum. Up to 15 million tons of bombs, uh, mines, and explosives were used in Vietnam during the war between 1945 and 1975, which constitutes four times the amount that was used in World War II. And it's estimated that 800,000 tons of unexploded ordnance still remains in Vietnam, most of them in central Vietnam, some uh, 6.1 million hectares or 18.7% of the country's total landmass is uh, estimated to be contaminated with unexploded ordnance so if you can imagine that almost almost 20% of the entire country's landmass still has unexploded bombs that's essentially the 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 trauma kind of recurs here because even to this day, people are still discovering unexploded ordnance in villages or in farmland or, you know, the coastline or wherever it may be. People are usually just, I mean, it's usually just regular everyday people who are discovering unexploded ordinance and are dying as a result of it because they either can't identify it or they trip it accidentally. But, but it's still in the process of being removed to this day. There are non-governmental organizations that have dedicated their entire task force to clearing 40,000 to 50,000 hectares of land of unexploded ordnance on a yearly basis. So, I mean, they're still going through, but again, this is, you know, 40,000 to 50,000 a year in comparison to 6.1 million hectares that are still contaminated is, it's a slow process. And it's something that should be a pretty stern reminder, I think, of how deep the scars of war run how easily those wounds can kind of be reopened again. Like if you want to talk about a physical representation of trauma, there's no more, I think, visceral example than this, where again, for people in America, our memory of that war is in large part, very abstract, unless you have a family member who served in in that war. If you yourself did, or, you know, you know, somebody who was involved, it's, it's probably still very abstract. It's still very mediated. Whereas it's just the opposite. For a lot of Vietnamese people, this is immediate. Right. To the extent that they even have to be you know, creating public education campaigns for, for children uh, to teach them how to identify American explosives from the, from the late 20th century so, so that they can play safely outside. It was really kind of profoundly sobering and appalling in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, I think it it highlights this idea of trauma as something that is embodied and material. Right. Uh this is not just something that people talk about or think about, it's something that they can actually feel on their bodies. Right. Because every day they are in a lived physical space that is is still like deeply scarred by this. Yeah. And is still being harmed in an ongoing way. I think that's a really important thing for people to take away from the idea of how trauma and memory are related. Mm-hmm. When you remember trauma on this scale, you're not just rehearsing it through words or, or in your own head. You're actually feeling it right? in a very, yeah, as you said, immediate way.
1: And so often I think it's, it's important to also acknowledge that when we're talking about memory and trauma when it applies to war... There's a definite distinction in how things get remembered depending on where the war is fought, right? If the war is fought on your soil, you're absolutely going to remember things in a different way because you're going to be, especially with the extent of the devastation that happened in Vietnam as a result of the war, you can't forget that because, you know, I mean, even in some parts of the country that I went to, historical sites that are being preserved to, uh, to show the craters that were created by carpet bombings of certain Mm -hmm. areas like they purposefully maintain physical reminders of traumatic events like like that war there are some markers of that trauma that are just indelible you can't forget them just by the very nature that you're of the fact that you're surrounded by them on a daily basis So, moving along again, we had—so, uh, episode five, we talked about online deliberative spaces and the construction of certainty and fact. For this one, we talked to our, our now-editor emeritus, uh, Anna Cook, who was doing her dissertation research on how, uh, how people argue about climate change on Wikipedia and we really tried to we focused a lot in this episode on a concept called dialogicality which refers basically to the amount of voices or the amount of perspectives that are present uh, in any in a representation of of a concept or of a conflict or of of just an idea or or a topic Mm -hmm. so for global warming or for climate change what Anna observed was that as more perspectives, both the sort of scientific consensus on global warming as well as the the small amount of dissenting opinions were being brought into the Wikipedia articles on climate change and on, or on global warming, It was presented as being less certain. This idea that global warming is either happening or the rate at which it's it's accelerating. All of these things are sort of being represented as more open to different kinds of interpretations rather than as being a scientific fact that, yes, global warming is happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, it's happening at this pace and it's going to have these consequences. So in thinking about this and the sort of consequences of what the public believes about the nature of reality, in essence, the way that things happen and sort of factual reality. One of the examples that at the time of this recording is still playing out a little bit, but it's very recent and Mm. it's had an interesting life cycle. So we can call this kind of the rhetorical life cycle of the death toll of Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. So Hurricane Maria went through in uh, 2017, caused massive devastation to the island of Puerto Rico to the extent that you know most people were living without water without electricity some people still are without water and without electricity right. conditions you know have been by by most reports slow to improve and that's putting it mildly i think but there was also this issue of the of the officially reported death toll uh, for hurricane maria what I think is first interesting to talk about is why why the death toll is an important fact that's open to controversy. And I was hoping, Calvin, we could talk about this.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I, I think it's important to understand the death toll as a point of controversy in the age of Trump. Because yes. I don't think it would be this level of a controversy under a different president. Because Trump is someone who has shown a particular fascination with controversies about numbers. Yes. Um, oh, we saw this so during true. the inauguration scandal mm-hmm. debate. Yeah, thing yeah about where, crowd where, size. Yeah, yeah, about crowd size where he claimed that he got a larger crowd than Obama's and, mm-hmm. you know, the news media was able to like pretty conclusively debunk that, but yeah. but he never accepted the revision. Yeah. And uh it's the
1: same with the the popular vote count for the election too. He even contested that the idea that you know that Hillary Clinton won by 3 million votes. He actually, you know, had a tweet saying, you know, well, I actually won the popular vote if you account for the fact that uh, you know millions of these votes were stolen or it was or they were illegally, you know, fraudulently being placed and things like that. So you're I hadn't even thought about that, but you're absolutely
0: right. Yeah, so so he he likely views this death count as some kind of a reflection of his own leadership right? Right. You know, rightfully, so yeah i think I um, know I think and, it definitely and-
1: he's not wrong about that, but yeah, um, so
0: let's go through, so yeah, so, so yeah, how did this develop over time right, yeah, so the
1: initial the initial estimate this was around in the immediate to, to near aftermath of of the hurricane, so the official government's official puerto rican government's statistic for a, for a very long time was that 64 people had died as a result of the hurricane in Puerto Rico. And again, that was it was left to stand at least by the government, but media groups and you know media outlets were very skeptical of this mm-hmm. and were applying a lot of pressure basically to get the government to further investigate. Mm-hmm. And so the government was actually responsive to that and did conduct more of its own Investigations. It actually, you know, it hired a number of independent investigators to kind of look into it as well. Around August 9th, the government of this year, of, of this correct. year, yes, yep, correct. So it's been it's been almost a full year now, and the Puerto Rican government kind of quietly announced that okay, well, the death toll is actually much higher than we had initially estimated. The New York Times on August 9th broke this news. The headline was, the Puerto Rican government acknowledges hurricane death toll of 1,427, so remarkably higher than the initial estimates. Then, later that month, this year again, August 28th, George Washington University, which had been one of the studies that was commissioned by the government to, to investigate this, Estimated that the death toll was more around 2,975. And currently, at the time of this recording, that is the official estimate that has been endorsed by at least the Puerto Rican government. Mm-hmm. So again, that comes out on August 28th. Now the sort of official standing figure is 2,900. So almost 3,000 people. So we went from 64 <laughs> to almost 3,000. <laughs> almost 3,000 over the span of a year where, again, there are these kind of forces in the background that, unless you do a lot of digging it's difficult to know how those figures are arrived at but but this is kind of the official pronouncement of the death toll has has gone from 64 to almost 3000
0: so then on september 13th donald trump enters the arena and yes. and says he has a tweet that sa- that reads three thousand people did not die
1: in the two and th- i'm quoting verbatim here three thousand people did not die in the two hurricanes that hit puerto rico when i left the island after the storm had hit they had anywhere from six to eighteen deaths as time went by it did not go up by much then a long time later they started to report really large numbers like three thousand This was done by the Democrats in order to make me look as bad as possible when I was successfully raising billions of dollars to help rebuild Puerto Rico. If a person died for any reason, like old age, just add them onto the list. Bad politics. I love Puerto Rico. So Trump kind of comes out and is contesting the number, this figure of 3,000. So he's making two kind of interesting moves here to call the the figure into question and to sort of increase what I would say the the dialogicality of of this of this, this fact set of facts. or this of this set of facts exactly. Yeah. So first and foremost, he's attributing it to a person or to a group of people who is saying the fact or who is representing it. In this case, he's saying that it's d- being done by the Democrats. There's of course not really any kind of evidentiary basis. To show that it's that Democrats are conspiring for this figure again like the people who are commissioning these studies are the Puerto Rican government and different like George Washington University was the one that actually arrived at the figure of 2,975 deaths. But what's being done discursively is to at least say this is a number that's being given by a group of people. And in my mind, a, or Donald Trump's mind, a particularly untrustworthy group of people who have a motive to undercut my authority or to mm-hmm. misrepresent what I do. And the second kind of interesting move that I see him doing is actually calling the the methods by which the number was arrived at into question as well. He's writing here: if a person died for any reason, like old age, they would just add them on to the list, which he calls bad politics. I mean. If that was truly the case, that would be a bad study methodology. If you actually go in and read from the methods section of the George Washington University study, which I did, the estimates of 2,975 people was ascertained from basically comparing a predictive model of how many people would have died if the hurricane did not even happen, right? So they were using historical data on a sort of, you know, birth death rates within Puerto Rico and what it probably would have been in the aftermath of Maria based on historical data and comparing that with the actual reported deaths in the country to arrive at a number that would, through their modeling, rule out any of the noise that Trump is talking about. Like, you know, if somebody died because of old age, the methodology actually accounts for that. But again, it's one of those things that you wouldn't know that unless you went in and read the actual methodology of the study That showed how that was accounted for right and somebody in a high position of power who has a lot more reach like more people read that tweet than read the george washington university study methodology that has a sort of greater visibility as as a potential explanation in a sense you know the uncertainty of this fact is being called into question in in a more vocal way than the
0: certainty of it is being reinforced right and I think what's also interesting about his approach there is he introduces a counter number that he gives no methodological basis, for, right? Obviously, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah. he just throws out, you know, between six, six and 18. eighteen, yeah. Which, <laughs> again, recall we went from sixty-four, right, initially, right, just a lot more than eighteen, yeah, up to now three thousand. Mm-hmm. So he undercuts this entire chain of. Of research and investigation just by introducing his own number. And yeah, it definitely points to the fact that in these kinds of seemingly cut and dry factual disputes, dialogicality and uncertainty can find its way in, particularly when you have powerful people with an interest in putting those things into the conversation absolutely yeah
1: and I think yeah you you touched on kind of one of the one of the things that I think we we talked about a little bit in the episode which is number one the extent to which we still value as a public and as a nation still value expertise right and you know this sort of meticulous processes by which these figures and facts are arrived at Versus just raw power. Right. Uh, you know, just in terms of who has more reach, who has the ability to make their voice and their case, their reasoning, if you want to call it that, heard, you know, is somebody like the president who also, ha- again, like you rightly and importantly mentioned, has an interest in saying that this is that this death toll is low. Well, we should, I mean, we should point
0: that out. <laughs> I mean, I mean, look. Uh, As we learned from his national security strategy document, a central continuity in history is the contest for power. That's right.
1: Yeah. No, he is. He is truly at least consistent.
0: He is. He's at least.
1: (laughs) We're going on the record. Yeah, he he is. Give him credit. Yeah, credit where it's due. He. He. We can. We know for certain that he is very interested in power, and and he realizes that discursively reframing issues in these kinds of ways only serves to reinforce his power. The more you keep those kinds of things uncertain and you use your platform to to call things into question, the greater control I would say, you know, he maybe at least tries to assert over over the, the news narrative surrounding Absolutely. this. So yeah, it it opens up a whole bunch of questions about how we should be representing issues in public or, you know, either if it's academics or people in the media And to what extent, you know, should we actually go into the weeds with these things, like going through the methodology and saying like, oh, no, actually this method of calculating the death toll actually rules out accidental death or deaths by old age or other things like that? Or does that just reinforce the counter narrative by saying, okay, well, there's there's a reason that we need to respond in this way. And it's because our figures are being called into question. Does it give the people who representing those facts more power if they still just present it as like no it was three thousand anybody who says differently is selling something <laughs>
0: essentially yeah I don't know I mean I I think that's a very that's very much an unresolved question that yeah. people need to think through because I think in both cases there's a danger of reinforcing Trump's position right. because if you if you say that no anyone who says it's not three thousand is trying to sell you something or mm-hmm. is trying to reinforce their own power then you're kind of getting into the same indictment of character mm. that that he's engaging in by calling this the Democrats trying to make him look bad, sure. right? yeah. But on the other hand, as you say, if you talk about the nuances of the methodology, then it starts to make it seem like a, a very partial view of the truth, which it right. is. Right. But, you know, these things have to be evaluated on their merits. I think potentially right. if you talked about the method, it would highlight... That there's no method behind Trump's estimate. He's yes. just pulling 6 to 18 yeah. deaths out of nowhere. Right. So I think there could be some benefit in academics, like, engaging in the public conversation and saying, mm. this is actually how we arrived at this figure, mm-hmm. and it, it has some merit behind it. Like right. we—, we put some work into this
1: right yeah more merit than just yeah just saying something yeah without without any any justification so yeah yeah, it's an interesting question that we'll be following further uh in in episodes this season our show today was produced and edited by alex helberg and calvin pollock our co-producer is ryan mitchell you can subscribe to reverb and leave us a review on apple podcasts stitcher android or wherever you listen to podcasts check out our website at www.reverbcast.com you can also like us on facebook and follow us on twitter where our handle is at reverbcast that's r-e-v-e-r-b underscore c-a-s-t thanks for tuning in